Exodus chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. 18 verse 1. Now Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel and his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Moses' wife Zipporah after he had sent her away. And her two sons, of whom one was named Gershom, for Moses said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the other was named Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was camped, at the Mount of God. Apt names for these two kids of Moses, these two sons. Now we're going to wander into an interesting family situation here. Moses' wife Zipporah, the last time we heard from her was back in Exodus chapter 4. We'll look at that in just a moment. But she's kind of gone missing from the story. She's not there. Where is she? No one is really certain until we get to Exodus 18 and we discover there she is. She was all the while back with her dad. She went home to daddy took the two sons and left Moses and went back or was sent by Moses it's kind of vague we're not quite sure what exactly happened there but she's back with dad in Midian well now dad Jethro has heard all about what God has been doing through Moses and so he comes down with Zipporah Moses' wife and two sons brings them to Moses for a family reunion actually a family reunification because Moses for all his wonder and splendors as truly a man of God is a man whose family was divided. A man whose family was, at least for a time, for a season, somewhat fractured. A man whose family wasn't as it probably should have been. But before we get into that, just looking at these two boys, Gershom and Eliezer, I want to remind you again of what we are doing here. I'm not talking about just here in our Bible study tonight. I'm talking about here on planet Earth. Let me remind you once again the name Gershom. It means sojourner. Again, that is what we are. We are sojourners. His name is a perfect description for one who would follow the Lord, for anyone who would walk in the footsteps of Jesus. We're sojourners. Rick, you say that all the time. I know, and I will keep saying it. We've got to stay focused. How quickly do we forget that we're here for a brief time? How quickly do we walk out of Bible studies or or times of, of being together, fellowshipping with other Christians, and immediately we get sucked back into the world and back into the minute details of every day, and we forget we are part time here. We are not here for long. We are sojourners. Peter understood this so well. First Peter chapter one verse seventeen. He wrote and said, If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay. The word stay there is sojourn. Conduct yourself with fear, awareness, awe at the majesty of God. During this short time, the time of your stay, your part-time stay, your sojourn. And 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, the famous verse you probably are familiar with, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For once, you were not a people. 
but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And then he says, and listen to these words, Beloved, I urge you as aliens. It's the same word as before, sojourners. I urge you as sojourners and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. We talked last week about how Amalek was a picture of the flesh, waging war against Israel, attacking from behind, attacking the weak places. And the flesh does that, wages war against the soul. Peter goes on and says in 1 Peter 2.12, Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God when? In the day of your visitation. In the day of His visitation. Glorify God when He comes. Peter says two things there. You're sojourners and God is coming. You are short in your stay here and God is returning soon. Remember that. There is a day coming that you and I are called to journey toward. And we are on a journey. We are Gershom. We are sojourners. Peter learned this personally and practically. He understood this. Jesus changed this man. This man was locked into the Sea of Galilee. He was a seaward sailor spending his life up until he met Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. But Jesus would change this seaward sailor into a heavenward traveler, radically altering Peter's life, pulling him out of the Sea of Galilee, throwing him into the Sea of the world for a sojourn for a time. And if we look at the ministry of Peter, and we even look at the traditions in the church about what Peter did and how much he ended up traveling, how many churches he was involved with planting, we see that he understood, he grasped the concept, we are short-timers here, sojourners, we are just like Gershom. And it's important we understand this. It's not just a conceptual, vague, hazy theology. Being a sojourner is not just, oh yeah, that's kind of what we are. It's not something you use for you know, an, an email address or something. It is, it is a truth that we need to grasp. Because learning to live as sojourners is as practical as it gets where following the Lord is concerned. If we can understand this principle, it changes our entire life perspective. Being a follower of Jesus is not one who's standing still in the mud and the muck of life. It's one who is moving out. One who is constantly on their feet. One who is on the go knowing that the time is short. And I love this verse, Psalm 119.54. Your statutes are my songs in the house of my sojourn. The house of my sojourn. What is the house of my sojourn? It is planet earth. This is the house of my sojourn. This world is that place. And as we recognize this truth, our daily steps, our daily decisions, moment by moment, whether it's family decisions or work-related decisions, whatever it might be, our decisions are impacted, affected by the fact that we are here a short time, for a short time. And we've seen with Israel that God is trying to drive this point home. You remember the first stop on their journey. Sukkoth meaning tent town. He set them up right at the beginning. You are going to be sojourners. God plans for them this year-long trip down into the Sinai Peninsula and back up. And along this trip from, from Sukkoth to Sinai, seven stops along the way where he would teach them incredible lessons, important lessons. And with each stop, they would learn even more so how to rely on the Lord. And Moses' second son wonderfully speaks of this, Eliezer, meaning God is my help. And those two concepts together are the sum total 
of our Christian journey. I am a sojourner, but man, God is my help. And it doesn't matter if the way is hard. And it doesn't matter if the way is difficult or painful. I was down today, down in Kirkland, visiting Larry Stickles. And pray for him, he's doing okay, but man, it's a lot of pain. He just had knee replacement surgery, both knees. And we were there today while he was trying to stand. They're, they're trying to get him to stand every day and, and bend his knees a little bit. And oh, it, he could barely do it. The pain was incredible. Now he's got a great spirit and he's, he's, a very, he's a very tough man. But something interesting happened. Let me just share this with you. And I thought it was wonderful. I was standing there. We were kind of in the hallway. And Larry was in, in the uh, room there, the hospital room. And the nurses came in and they were trying to help him stand. And Marianne, his wife, came out into the hallway. And Les Dams and I, Les and I were there. And we were talking with Marianne and we, we started praying because Larry was in there trying to stand. And Marianne wanted to step out because when he tried to stand the day before, it was literally so painful. It was very hard for her to even watch. So she stepped out in the hall with us and we're praying for him that God would ease this pain, that God would help him as he was standing in there. And the nurses are doing their thing and they're all around him. And I was in the doorway where I could see him and I could listen to the praying at the same time. So I'm watching Larry as we're praying that God would ease his pain and and would would help him. And in that moment, I saw Larry and and he stood. And, I mean, it was was incredible to look on his face. But I got overcome with this sense of pride. Now, you need to understand, it was strange for me. Larry is quite a bit older than I am. But when I looked at him... What overcame me, my feeling was a sense of pride in the same kind of pride that I would have for my children. I looked at him and I was overcome with a sense of fatherly pride for Larry. And at first I I thought, that's weird, what a weird feeling. I'm looking at him and I I was proud of him, but proud not, not like a friend to a friend, proud like a father to a son. And I thought that was awfully weird and a little bit arrogant and somewhat presumptuous of myself to feel that way. But that's the feeling that, that came over me. It was intense. Well, Larry finally got seated down and his legs propped up and he was sitting back and breathing and we went back into the room. And Les was there with me, many of you know Les. And Les said to Larry, he said, I have to tell you something that I believe a word that the Lord gave to me. I have to tell you that the Lord wants you to know he's proud of you. And I just went, <laughs> and, I, and I immediately said to Les, I said, my spirit bears witness to that. It truly does. I felt that's, that you put into words what I was feeling, but I didn't. it wasn't me feeling this pride for him. It was his father. It was the fact that God was looking at Larry and even in this pain was proud of him. And we got to talking about that. And, and it was hard for Larry, Larry to hear as it's hard for all of us to hear that God is actually proud of us. Because we go to this place where we say, and I've got to have to stand up because I'm getting excited. We go to this place where we think... Man, I'm not worthy of the Lord. I'm not worthy of His love. I'm not worthy of His grace. And so we just kind of huddle down and, and think, Lord, I'm not worthy. And all the while, God's saying, Man, but I'm so proud of you. Do you understand that one little step that you take, even if it's painful, even if it's hard, every little step you take as a sojourner, I am proud of you. As a father is proud of a son who is standing up for the first time, wobbly, wobbly legs and trying to walk, I'm proud of you. And as we walk as sojourners in this world, please understand this. I, I just I needed to pass this along to you tonight. Someone here may need to hear this. God's proud of you. He's not sitting there looking at how worthless you are. You and I know how worthless you are. <laughs> how worthless we are. We are aware of that. But God, when Jesus died on the cross and we accepted that death, man, He washed all of that away. It's gone. It's history. And when He looks at us, He does not look at us as worthless or even unworthy. 
Because he looks at us through the blood of Christ. And so we are Gershom, we're sojourners, but we are Eliezer. God is our help. It's both together. Sojourners with God is our help. And as we walk and as we stumble along, and like Larry, even when it's painful, the Lord is proud of you and He is calling you on and He wants us to keep our eyes fixed on home. On home. Over and over, you will hear me say this and have heard me say this, we've got to learn to keep our eyes fixed on the prize, which is heaven, and not get caught up with the things of earth, the momentary pain that we might feel in our knees. That sense of worthlessness that the devil would whisper into your ear over and over, you're not worthy, you are worthless. Oh, I'm sure you know that God loves you, but you know that you're not worth that. No, we are sojourners and God is our help. And this sojourn, this pilgrimage of the children of Israel continues as we read through it to be a practical picture for us. As we read it, understand. Again, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.4, he said, this is an, an example for you. You study through this. You look at Israel and they are, their journey is an example for you as a sojourner in the world today. And so we look at them and understand from their perspective, from their life, from what God walks out with them, that they are our example. And I want you to know that. We're going to come back to these first five verses. There's something amazing here, but going on first, verse 6, Jethro sent word to Moses. I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. And then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. All the hardship that had been befallen them on the journey and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know, now I know, says Jethro, the priest of Midian, not a Jew. Now I know, he says, that the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. And then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. Interesting. We are seeing here in the land of Moses' sojourn, the restoration, the reunification of a family. Moses' family. A family that had been somewhat split apart. Now, so you remember what happened. You might flip back quickly to Exodus chapter 4. What happened between Moses and Zipporah, his wife. Moses had been called by God. He had had the experience of the burning bush. Everything was, was pretty overwhelming but powerful. And, and he finally had accepted that yes, indeed, he had a call from God. And so Moses was on his way. But on the way there, with his wife Zipporah with him and his son, at least his son Gershom, is with him at this time, all of a sudden God shows up. And what does God want to do? Exodus chapter 4, and verse 24, it came about at the lodging place on the way that the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. A very strange verse. And we talked about this back when we studied the chapter that, that God sought to put Moses to death. Moses is deliverer. The man he had just called. What is going on? Is God schizophrenic here? Is he, he can't keep a focus? And so now the man he calls, he's confused? No, no, not at all. 
But God had a very specific expectation of Moses and it was that he would follow in the covenantal promise of Abraham. What was that covenant? Circumcision. And Moses had a son named Gershon who was not circumcised. On the eighth day, all the children of Israel were circumcised. That's what you did. It was part of keeping the Abrahamic covenant that God had made with Abraham and to all of his family after him. The firstborn, all the males, circumcised on the eighth day, but not Gershon. Moses at this point had neglected his spiritual duty to his family. And God said, you will not be my deliverer if you can't even keep my covenant. Well, reading on, it says, Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and threw it at Moses' feet. And she said to him, you indeed are a bridegroom of blood to me. So God let him alone at the time she said... At that time that she said, you're a bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. And that's it for Zipporah. She's gone. From this point on until chapter 18, we see no more of Zipporah. There's some that that posit that possibly Zipporah was so upset, so frustrated, so angry with what happened that she could not bear being with Moses at the time. There are some things to understand. Remember, Zipporah was a daughter of Midian, not a Jew, not of Israel. And so, being a daughter of Midian, a daughter of a pagan, this whole idea of circumcision to her would have been bizarre. It's entirely possible that the reason Gershom had not been circumcised was because Zipporah did not want it to happen. And Moses, living in Midian, being so far outside, away from the people of Israel, decided, eh, what does it really matter? It's no big deal. It's not that important. Zipporah bitterly circumcises Gershom to save his life. Notice what happens here. Zipporah does what Moses should have done. Zipporah does what Moses should have done. It was the responsibility of Moses to make sure the circumcision took place, not Zipporah. And yet, she was the one who did it, and it caused in her, I think, bitterness. So she's out of there. She takes off. She gets out. And here in Exodus 18, we discover where she went. Back back again with her father, Jethro, in Midian. So Jethro sees this, realizes what's going on with Moses, brings the family back to reunite them. And there are so many little practical things in here, especially to husbands, especially to fathers, the idea of abdicating our God-given responsibility to our kids. I think you could draw a parallel here. I think the Lord wants husbands to take the knife, unsheath the sword of the Spirit, and circumcise the hearts of their children. That is the man's responsibility. Not that the woman is not important and doesn't have a responsibility in the, in the godly raising of children too. But you know, gentlemen, when we abdicate that responsibility, our, our wives may take it, they may run with it, they may raise our children spiritually for us problem is they may also be a little frustrated with us because God has called us to do that. Is anybody else getting warm in here? You okay? Russ, why don't we cut that off? I'm, I mean, I'm also almost ready to break a sweat here. <laughs> First Timothy chapter 3 verse 4 tells us, he who man, what, uh, he must be, talking about elders, must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his own children under control with all of dignity. And then it says this, and listen to this, if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And so in this story we have a picture of Gershom being spiritually neglected. He hadn't been circumcised, and yet amazingly God now is restoring this family. Well, there are a couple ways we could go with this chapter and studying it and trying to understand it. One is, is an immediate practical. We could talk about family restoration. 
We could talk about practical steps to marital bliss. There are some interesting points that can be drawn out in that direction. Or a father's responsibility to his children, as I've shared a little bit. But this story, this story is amazing because its practicality reaches much deeper than we might think. Or than we might have thought. This story goes, I believe, far beyond, far deeper than just the surface level, what are you going to do with your kids, how are you going to live your life as a man, as a woman, and in a marital relationship. There is something of the prophetic in this story that I really want to share with you tonight. I want you to think back for a moment over the last several weeks of our study and what had happened, what we have seen of Jesus in our study. Remember, we talked about that Jesus shows up he shows up in the Old Testament in many different forms, in many different ways, in many different pictures or, or types. We saw Jesus in the manna in the wilderness. The bread of heaven. It's the incarnation of Jesus. John 6.51 Jesus said, I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. He compares himself to the manna. And Jesus said, hey, you eat the manna, or your forefathers ate the manna, and they died. But anyone who eats of the true bread of heaven, which is me, will live forever. So we have in the manna this picture of Jesus, the incarnation of Christ, the, the Word becoming flesh and living among us. Then the next picture we have is the rock that Moses struck at Rephidim. The rock that was struck. The rock that was struck, and when it was struck, it produced water. Another picture of Jesus, not the incarnation, but the crucifixion of Jesus. For he is the rock that was stricken, out of whom flowed living water. And again, 1 Corinthians 10.4, they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock was Christ. Well, the next scene that we saw was the Amalekites... The Amalekites coming to fight against Israel. And on Sunday we talked about this. Moses high on the hill holding aloft his staff and praying for the people. And we see in that a picture of the intercession of Jesus. For Jesus was that man on the hill held aloft by a pole himself. And in that pole praying for the salvation of people. But after he died, after he was buried and resurrected and then ascended in the ascension of Jesus... After that, we see him always intercessing, making intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 says he is able to also save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So drawing back, those three things, we have the incarnation of Jesus seen in the manna, we have the crucifixion of Jesus seen in the rock at Rephidim, and we have the intercession of Jesus seen when the, the Amalekites attack. But there's something else here in chapter 18 that follows suit in this progression from incarnation to crucifixion to intercession. It's the next big thing on God's prophetic plan, barring the rapture of the church. And it is the next great world event, what I would call the glorious institution. The institution of the kingdom. And there's a picture of it embedded right here in the study, in, in the elements or, or the characters of chapter 18 in these first 12 verses. I want to show this to you and see if you see these things as well. This picture of Jesus and the kingdom. What does that look like? Well, first of all, we have Moses and his wife. His wife, Zipporah. And in Zipporah and Moses, we actually have a picture, I think powerfully, of God and his wife. God's wife. 
Who's God's wife? Well, Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 32 tells us, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. A husband to them. Israel is the wife of God. The next verse, Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 and 6. For your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. For the Lord has called you like a wife forsaken and grieved in spirit, even like a wife of one's youth when she is rejected, says your God. And in both of these instances, Israel is called the wife of God. You might say, well, wait a minute. I thought the church was the bride. Absolutely. The church is the bride. The bride of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. But Israel is the wife of God in these pictures in Scripture. And we need to understand that because again as we come back and we look at Zipporah and Moses, Moses himself tended to be, looked like, was a picture of God for Israel. Remember back when he was arguing with God, back I believe in chapter 4, and he was saying, Lord, I can't, I can't speak, I can't be your guy. And God says, no, no, you are going to be, you are going to be my guy. And I'm going to get Aaron to speak for you. In fact, he'll be like a prophet to you and you will be like God to him. And so in many instances throughout Scripture, Moses becomes, well, a type of Christ. He, he looks like God. He stands between God, who the people are frightened of, and the people. He is a picture of God. But here comes Zipporah, his wife. And she, I believe, is a picture of Israel. Why do you say that? Well, Israel is a wife who ran off. Israel is a wife who ran away from God, who couldn't handle God, who, who ran into prostitution. The whole book of Hosea describes this romantic relationship between Hosea the prophet and his wife, Gomer, and how she runs off and how the whole thing is a picture of God and Israel. Israel, the unfaithful wife. But why is it that Zipporah runs off? She does so because she's offended. This whole scene of circumcision and calling Moses, you're the bridegroom of blood. She's offended by Moses. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews. A stumbling block. A stumbling block. Romans 9.32 says they stumbled over the stumbling stone just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. A rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. A bloody Messiah was an offense to the Jews. To see Jesus lifted up on that cross, how could that possibly be our Messiah? It is an offense. Roman crucifixion is the place of criminals. It's the place of offense. And the message of the cross was and continues to be an offense to the Jewish people in the same way that Zipporah was offended by Moses, offended by circumcision, offended by what she called the bridegroom of blood. And I think we have a picture here that begins to emerge that Zipporah is a picture of the wife of God being brought back to God. The wife who is brought back. Now, hold that thought and let's move on. Look at, again, the two sons. Two sons. Which, again, we didn't really know this by now, until now. Before, all we really knew was Gershom, who was the firstborn son who wasn't circumcised. We weren't apprised of Eliezer, who shows up later now. Gershom and Eliezer, the two sons. How many uh, different nations did Israel divide into? When Israel divided, how many nations did they become? you recall? Two. 
Northern Israel, Israel, the northern kingdom, ten tribes up to the north, Judah to the south. Two tribes or two nations that they divided into, similar to two sons, but the picture is deeper than that. What happened when the Jewish people rejected Messiah? What happened to the Jewish people when they rejected Messiah? They rejected him along about 80, 33, 35, somewhere in there. Shortly after that, what happened to the Jewish people? They were dispersed. They became strangers in a strange land. They became Gershom. Gershom, a stranger in a strange land. That's what the name means. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. That is the picture of Israel. Scattered literally into every corner of the world. Scattered, dispersed, strangers in a strange land for nearly 2,000 years. And with Israel we see something that we have never seen before. It hasn't happened with any other culture, any other people group in the history of the world. And that's that they have survived as a people group. Now don't forget the miracle of this. It's 2004 and, and five now, isn't it? It's 2005. It was 1948 that Israel became a nation again. And what's amazing about that is, is in 1948, prophecy students were just blown away. And in the ensuing years, as they began to watch this nation of Israel that re-emerged onto the scene miraculously, the Hebrew language that re-emerged with Israel that was a dead language, that's never happened before. A people group has never been dispersed. In fact, as I think I've told you before, 200 years is about the max. For a people group to be dispersed like Israel for more than 200 years, no other people group has come back as a nation again. 200 years, culture gets kind of sucked up and, and dispersed into whatever nations the people go into. But not Israel. Not Israel. Miraculously, for some 17, 1800 years, they maintained their identity, though dispersed all over the world. How did they do it? These strangers in a strange land. These people like Gershom. How did they do it? Eliezer. God is my help. Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 4 says, If your outcasts are at the end of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. And from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed. And you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. God has been Israel's helper all this time. Prior to them becoming a nation again, that 2000, roughly 2,000 year period, God was Israel's help. Oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying that even though they rejected Messiah, even though Israel had their chance and blew it, that they are now and have continued to be helped by God, who they have rejected? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying because God's covenant to Israel was unconditional. It was not based on how they would respond and God does not break his promises. And so he gave this covenant, this promise, I will be your help. And so though the people were Gershom, strangers in a strange land, they have also been Eliezer, God is our help. And though they don't even recognize the true God, though they don't understand Jesus as Messiah, even to this day, God has continued to be their help. And I don't have time tonight to go into all the ways miraculously that God has protected the nation of Israel today, which right now is mostly a non-believing nation. It's mostly a secular nation. And yet God is still their help, whether they realize it or not. 
they themselves won't even understand and know just how much God is their help until Jesus comes to establish his kingdom and then it will become clear Zechariah chapter 12 verse 10 I will pour out on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn Zipporah the wife Israel brought back brought back to Moses this picture of God Israel brought back to God the wife back to the husband the two sons being that picture of strangers in a strange land but God has been their help all the way to this point when he will bring them back and where where will this reunion take place where will this reunification of Israel as God's wife and God take place it's interesting the Bible tells us it will be on the mount of God where is it that Zipporah is brought back to be with Moses the mount of God the Mount of God. Mount Sinai is where Zipporah is brought back, but the Bible indicates that Sinai is a picture of another mountain, Mount Zion. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and a whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sounds of words which sound was such that those who heard begged no further word be spoken to them for they could not bear the command quote even if a beast touches the mountain it will be stoned and so terrible was the sight that Moses said I am full of fear and trembling but you have come you have come the Hebrew writer says to Mount Zion to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God Mount, Sin- Mount, Mount Sinai is a portent it's a picture of Mount Zion of Jerusalem and Zechariah tells us that that day is coming when Jesus will set foot on the Mount of Olives, making his way down through the Kidron Valley, through the Eastern Gate, into Jerusalem, Mount Zion, the Mount of God. And what's going to happen there? Zechariah 14 tells us there will be a reinstatement of the Feast of Booths, of sacrifice, of feasting, of celebration during the millennium, and it will happen annually throughout the whole millennium. And that's interesting to me because verse 12 tells us that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. What do they do after the wife is reunited with the husband and Jethro comes back and all is good? They celebrate. They they feast on the mountain of God. They sacrifice. Now this is a totally different study for another time, but it seems to be indicated in Scripture that sacrifice in Jerusalem will be reinstated. And you might say, well, why is that? At the time of the Jews, the sacrifice was for, you know, it was for sin. And once the millennium comes, why would we need a sacrifice for sin? Especially because Jesus is there and he was the one-time sacrifice. And the indication is that the sacrifice will be reinstated as a memorial of what God has done for Israel. Not a payment for sin. Not a substitutionary, substitutionary sacrifice, but a sacrifice of memory to remind people. Well, I think this is the most important thing and I want you to really hear this. For all these little signs and pictures, you know, the kids and the, and the wife coming back to be with God and the Mount of God, here's the thing I really want you to see. And it's the most powerful picture in this passage. It's Jethro. Who did God use to reunite this family? If in fact Zipporah is a picture of Israel and Moses is a picture of God and this reunification is taking place, who did God use to do it? Jethro, a Gentile. He worked through a Gentile to bring this wife back in the same way that God works through Gentiles 
to bring the Jews back. And I say this without the least little drop of arrogance because it has nothing to do with myself as a Gentile or the power of the Gentiles or the ability of the Gentiles or the church to reign in the kingdom. That's not what's happening here. But God works through and uses the Gentiles. And, and again, let me encourage you to read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Just read through it. Get lost in it. Wander around in it for a while. It is so amazing. That section of scripture that Paul writes illuminates this like no other. That God actually, through the Jews' rejection of Jesus, of Messiah, God then hands it over to the Gentiles. Because they rejected, we now have opportunity to be saved. It was all part of this mysterious and wonderful plan. But our salvation will create and has already created a jealousy among the Jews. A jealousy. And a jealousy that God says, that Paul says, ultimately will drive them back to the Father. God will use the Gentiles to bring the Jews back in the same way that he uses the Gentile Jethro to bring the wife of Moses back. And this relationship, and I mention this for this reason, this relationship of Gentile to Jew is incredibly important to the Lord and shouldn't be missed in Scripture. And our concern for the Jew is not only important, it's commanded. It's commanded. Numbers chapter 24 verse 9 Blessed is everyone who blesses you Speaking of Judah, of the Jews And cursed is everyone who curses you Psalm 122 verse 6 Pray for the peace of Jerusalem May they prosper who love you May peace be within your walls And prosperity within your palaces For the sake of my brothers and my friends I will now say May peace be within you For the sake of the house Ooh, A spider just landed on me That's weird Get out of here Church in a barn. Amazing. <laughs> Psalm 122, verse 8. Again, for the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, May peace be found within you. Listen, for the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. Who's good? Israel's good. For the sake of the house of God, for God's sake himself, for his name's sake, I will seek the good of Israel. I will pray for Israel. I will desire the good to happen for Israel. And listen to this, Matthew 25, verse 40. Matthew 25, which is a parable. I'm going to fly through this. I know I'm moving kind of quick here, but Matthew 25 is the parable of the sheep and the goats. And in this parable of the sheep and the goats, God is dividing, the Bible tells us, the nations. And his standard in the division of the nations, his standard for salvation at that time will be how people treated the Jews. Listen to verse 40. The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, Jesus speaking, who are Jesus' brothers? The Jews. For he himself was a Jew. To the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Jesus identifies himself completely. And again, it's another study for another time, but I personally believe that in this separation, the sheep of the goats, that we're talking about something that happens after the tribulation, and Jesus is judging between those people who were not raptured in the church, but those people who lived through the tribulation, and how they treated during that time the people of Israel. And if you have questions about that, we can talk about that or it will come up, I'm sure, in another study. But look at this now. Look at verse 9 and we answer this question. What do we see Jethro doing in this chapter? Verse 9, Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done 
to Israel. That, my friends, is the perfect example for you and I as Christians as to how we are to relate to Israel. How we are to think about them. How we are to act toward them. This is a wonderful mystery. The Gentiles would not only bless and pray for Israel, but God would use Gentiles in the act of restoring His wife, who is Israel. And what amazes me, what absolutely blows my mind, is not the Jews who miss this as much as the Christians who miss this. Who misunderstand this. Who don't know this. And why would a Christian not understand this, not understand what the Bible teaches, what God wants as far as our attitudes toward Israel? How could we possibly miss this? Because we have not received what James chapter 1 verse 21 calls the word implanted. Because if we see, receive the word implanted, if we understand what God's word is on these things, God's take on these things, then our attitude toward Israel and toward the Jews can only be one, and that is rejoicing at all the goodness that God does in and through them. As we watch on the stage today what happens to the people of Israel, we rejoice as they rejoice and we are sorrowful in their sorrow. We bless them. We want the best for them. Why? Because God does. Because He is their help. And in Jethro, again, we have this amazing example of the right attitude of the believing Gentile toward the Jewish people. Isaiah chapter 63, verse 7 says, I shall make mention of the loving kindness of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness toward the house of Israel. It's a picture again. Zipporah, the wife of God, but the people of God who were dispersed. And then God was their help. And the Gentile brings them back to God. And there's a great feast, a great celebration and sacrifice that happens where? On the Mount of God. And I believe we see we have hints here again, traces of the institution of the coming kingdom. All of that to say this. God's plan is huge. It's gigantic. It's mammoth. And it is so much bigger than the little petty things of our daily lives that we worry about. Now again, I know I talk about this a lot. You may even say, well Rick, this is fine for you. I know you get off on this stuff. You get really excited about the prophecy stuff. And that's wonderful. But what has it really got to do with me? Because tonight i got to go home and deal with kids. Tomorrow i got to get up and go deal with the boss. Or the schoolwork. Or the daily grind. What does this big, massive plan of God in Israel have to do with me? Well, I thought you might ask that question. Guys, we keep returning to this biblical theme for one clear reason. One reason alone, and that is to fix our eyes on God's agenda. And in so doing, we remove our eyes from our agenda, which tends to be so petty and so small. If we can keep our eyes focused on what God is doing, on what God's massive, wonderful, not just historical, but eternal plan is, then each day as we walk through this life, practically, it's a piece of cake. It's what Paul called our light and momentary trials. Again, I was with Larry today, and and that verse came up. We were talking and, and shared, hey, this is a light and momentary trial. Light and momentary? Are you kidding? He couldn't even stand up. The pain was so great. But in terms of eternity, light and momentary. Painful now. Painful for this moment, absolutely. But in terms of the big picture, the plan of God that is unfolding before us, it's light. It's momentary. It's no big deal. 
it will not even be remembered when Jesus comes into his kingdom. And my encouragement for you each day of your life is that you pray as Jesus prayed. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus prayed that. Your kingdom come. And as sojourners traveling with God's help, we need to get our eyes off the things of this world and onto the things, the big picture of God. Again, Peter wrote, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and strangers, as sojourners and strangers, I urge you to abstain from the flesh. Not to look at those little petty things that can draw you away from God, but to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus and what He's doing. His massive plan, His awesome plan, which will save us and in addition amazingly save Israel as well. Guys, page after page in the Bible is about getting our noses out of the pettiness and our eyes turned upward toward eternity and salvation and the coming of Christ. Let me read this verse to you one more time, James 1.21. In humility... Receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls, but prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Verse 12, last verse, one more time. Then Jethro, the Gentile, the Gentile, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, the Gentile. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God, the Gentile and the Jews, celebrating together before the Lord their God. And that's what we have to look forward to. That is the unification that is to come. The bringing together of these two peoples. And that's what God is planning. And Father, tonight we just ask that you would... Again, implant your word on our hearts and on our minds. And may we stand back in awe of your incredible plan. The plan that for so many years, for thousands of years, was a mystery until Jesus came. And busted into this world. Father, as the incarnation, as we talked about. And, and how, Lord, he was crucified, as we also talked about. And now lives to make intercession for us. But we know, Lord, that as the world keeps spinning and people keep saying, ah, everything is as it's always been. Nothing's changed. It's all just going to continue. But we know, Lord, we know that it won't. We know that you are going to institute a kingdom. That you are going to bring this about. And God, I pray among us tonight that you would keep our eyes fixed on that. Fixed on the promise of your kingdom. Looking forward, Lord, to that day when we are pulled out, the ambassadors taken home. Seven years with you, Lord, in a honeymoon, but but that kingdom to follow. God, with Jesus we join and pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth just as it is in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.